1: Hello and welcome to The Independent's Coronavirus Podcast. I'm David Marley, Deputy Editor at The Independent. And this podcast is about getting behind the headlines with some of our team, drilling down into the issues that are affecting our lives as we try to navigate our way through these unprecedented times. Today, sport, the thing that so many of us look to as an escape from everyday life, has been taken away at a time when we've never needed it more. As we record this, footballers are at the centre of the story, facing criticism for failing to take a pay cut while backroom staff are being furloughed. But there have been lots of big developments over the past week to discuss. I'm joined by senior football correspondent Melissa Reddy, sports features writer Vitushan Ahantaraja and Luke Brown, the host of the Independence Football Podcast. We'll come on to football later, along with cricket and also the momentous decision to cancel this year's Wimbledon Tennis Championships. But first, the biggest single sporting event derailed by coronavirus the Olympics. After much prevarication, the 2020 Games in Tokyo were finally called off last week and are now due to happen in 2021. Vish, you've written written a lot about the Games. Why did it take so long for the organisers to come to the decision that seemed inevitable for weeks?
2: Um, I think there are a few factors involved in that. I think primarily there was one which I think which everyone has been guilty of in this particular situation is I suppose not realising just how serious things were. I think there was um, a very hopeful feeling that because coronavirus looked to be getting under some form of control in that part of the world that perhaps... They'd be they'd be able to carry on given that the games weren't due until you know due start the end of July. So they thought that bought them enough time. They also asked for a bit more time to look at contingency plans with four weeks that were well, what four weeks of um, I suppose planning that were uh, you know granted by the IOC, but not certainly not willingly. Um, and I think eventually they saw sense. It was actually ultimately triggered by um, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe of um, of Japan, who. I think it was the first time in any correspondence, any public correspondence he had, where he openly admitted that the games were under threat, and that delaying them for a year in order to, I suppose, have the perfect Olympic and Paralympic Games um, was the was the only option. And kind of pretty soon after that, the IOC were, you know, totally happy to to go on board on that because ultimately that's exactly what they wanted as well. Um, we had a situation where. Um, you know, Olympic committees from Australia and the US were coming out publicly and putting pressure on the, on the Games and certainly GB Athletics, I think, as well, were talking about, you know, not sending people if, if that was going ahead. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they came to the right decision, but as you say, it, was, um, it took a while to get there and, and to be honest, uh, you know, it's better that they did it then than waited that extra month because I think a lot of people, particularly athletes, were getting pretty antsy at this
1: point yeah it seemed like uh, big events like the euros and other things were being kind of called off on an almost daily basis, and yet you kept getting this very hopeful message coming out of Tokyo that everything was going to be going to be just fine um, Where does it leave the games for next year it 's such a huge event to organize. Can they really just postpone it for a year without causing any big problems
2: um, I think they can i don 't know if they 'd have been able to do it in in certain other cities, but certainly with Tokyo and its infrastructure, and bear in mind that they because they know the games are going to happen, I think financially they'd they'd be in a sound enough situation to, I suppose, offset even profits for knowing that it's going to happen next year and they'll still have the backing of various TV companies and indeed the IOC who have, um, have a lot of money in reserves. Um... I think the biggest impact it will have will be on the athletes, in particular. Bear in mind, I suppose, on a, on a sporting level, that people have qualified for these particular events, and so you'd imagine they'd have to reopen those qualifying channels for some sports, um, qualifying points. For example, in badminton, there was, you know, the All England Championships, which were which went ahead, but a few other championships that would contribute towards ranking points to in order to get into the games, and you'd imagine they'd have to be replayed as well, because you know some of them weren't played anyway. And then you've also got the, the human elements to it. Um, you know, we've seen GB athletes like um, Susanna Townsend, who plays for the GB women's hockey team. She had earmarked the end of 2020, tw- the 2020 games as when she was going to retire to basically just get on with the rest of her life. And you see that with a lot of, actual- a lot of female athletes in particular who have one eye on maybe starting a family and therefore they kind of earmarked this summer, let alone this Games, as when they, you know, spend time doing that. So... Yeah, there'll be a lot of um, interesting things to come out of this in terms of where people whether people can can I suppose put their real life on hold for another year. Because bear in mind a lot of these Olympic Games, they're not big moneymakers for people. You know, they there's something that they do to get to the pinnacle of their sport, but they're not gonna make their careers. They need to find other forms of work. And and some of them need to get time off all over again, you know. So it will be interesting to see how that all pans out. Um the right decision has been made ultimately, so I'd imagine hopefully the fallout won't be too great, certainly on a financial level, in a sporting context. But I suppose on that human aspect, there will be, you know, for one of their words, some casualties, I suppose. There'll be some people who will have their dreams dashed by, what's, by the decision that's been taken.
1: Yeah, I mean, as, as you say, some of the athletes were getting a bit antsy and that must be so difficult for them who've spent... The whole year kind of getting ready to peak at the right time. Um, Melissa, you interviewed the current Olympic 400 metre champion and world record holder, Wade van Nijkerk, recently, just after the decision was made to postpone the Games. What was his take on it?
3: I thought it was quite interesting that he brought up having to train when the outbreak of coronavirus was spreading so rapidly and affecting sporting codes all over the world. And as an Olympic athlete, he was still having to go to the track every day and try and, you know, have that singular focus on competing in Tokyo. And yet thinking to himself, uh, if I contract the virus, my coach, who's 78 years old, is probably not going to be able to recover from it. My nephew, who's just been born, um, that's probably going to affect him as well. So I thought it was really interesting to speak to an athlete and get their perspective on having to still, uh, you know, prime themselves in the midst of a global pandemic. Hardly anyone had spoken out about it when he did. And to hear that turmoil that he was facing every day uh, was quite gutting, actually. And I know for a lot of athletes, it came as a blow to them when the games were postponed. But for him, he said it felt like a relief, like so much weight was lifted on his shoulders because, one, he didn't want to be a carrier for the virus. He didn't want to infect anyone. But also... The games itself weren't being postponed, but all the events leading up to it, the preparation events, uh, were getting cancelled. So, as an athlete, as as a four hundred meter runner, he was thinking to himself, "How on earth am I going to be race sharp to hit, you know, forty three seconds when I I think the last one, the last warm up race that he'd done was forty seven? That's a big that five seconds is a massive gap." And he said both on a personal level from the turmoil he was feeling in that sense, but also from a professional level, just expecting athletes to, you know, still take part in a games without having the proper conditioning for it um, was, was wrenching to him. So I I think it will also actually benefit him having an extra year out because he's had, you know, major knee injuries, surgery, setbacks. uh, So he'll be in better condition.
1: You actually you you mentioned that he was worried about in, infecting his coach. I was interested to to read in your piece that his coach is also his great grandmother. Is that right?
3: She she is a great grandmother, and effectively she is like family to him now. Um, she was like a, a great athlete in her own right, and I, I thought you know often, and we're seeing it with football now, the the athletes, the people who we idolise, they can often get. Uh, unfair press and criticism. They're often seen as not having or, or being quite distant and not actually having any sort of connection with with people around them and what's going on in the world. And I thought listening to him and hearing about how he wasn't actually thinking about himself and his race and his career during that time. He was thinking about his coach and his family and everyone else that he could infect. Um, And also I think with him, uh, it was such an uplifting story to do in these uncertain times because he was so positive through everything. And I think the reason that is, is because he was born 11 weeks premature, was given 24 hours to live uh, when he was born and spent the first two weeks of his life in ICU. So I think every hurdle he sees now, he thinks, back and he's like well I've already conquered all that so this is not going to derail me I I actually felt better reading that piece so if anyone out there wants a bit of upliftment I'd suggest they go and read that interview
1: and I would I would also recommend that the biggest sporting story of this week or at least so far has been the cancellation of Wimbledon Luke you've written about that it's such a centerpiece of of the British summer can you talk to us about why it's been such a huge deal for them to make that move
4: yeah sure, I think it's because Wimbledon has always been seen you know as this huge social institution as well as a, a sporting one. It is the jewel in the British sporting summer, and it's an event that has only previously been interrupted because of the um the two world wars. But right from an early point, the All England club were united in in their belief that it shouldn't be played behind closed doors they They didn't entertain that idea at all. Um, And as the pandemic grew in severity and as the measures taken by the government uh, got more and more serious, it was always sadly inevitable that a difficult decision was going to have to be made. Um, The problem with Wimbledon is that unlike a lot of other tournaments and unlike a lot of other tennis tournaments, which you can either postpone or you can move later on into the calendar, Wimbledon is obviously played on on a living surface. It's played on grass. Um, it takes about 15 months to um, to get the grass courts ready. So even though this summer's grass courts were, you know, they've been prepared and, and they could be played on, if you play two months into the future, if you play at the end of the summer, days are going to be shorter, uh, dew is going to be heavier, and suddenly those courts are quite dangerous places to play. So, yeah, really Wimbledon had... Um, no option, and and they did the only thing they could in the circumstances.
1: So the French the French Open's been postponed, is that right?
4: Yeah, so the French the French Open's been postponed, but the uh, the organisers basically took that decision without bothering to tell anybody first, which has resulted in quite a lot of uh, controversy and a lot of animated uh, conversations. Um, so essentially, the French Open is played just before Wimbledon at the start of summer. Um, it's played on clay, so it doesn't really matter when it's played as long as it's dry Um, so they've looked to play that right at the end of summer kind of autumn time now Um, the problem is that it clashes directly with something called the laver cup Um, and it's going to be played a week after the hypothetical u.s open which obviously could still be postponed so it doesn't really take much of a tennis expert to realize that two grand slams played in The space of about two weeks on two different services across two different continents is is going to be a huge problem. And the the US Open organisers are pretty furious with the French Open for kind of stealing their uh, small slot of the calendar.
1: I can't talk to you about Wimbledon without asking about Andy Murray. So what does the postponement mean for him? Does it give him more time to kind of get fit and come back or is it kind of getting too late for him?
4: It's so hard to say. I mean, obviously, it does give him more time to recover from this kind of um, horrible array of injuries. Um, the, the big shame is that so many of the huge stars of the um, tennis scene at the moment are older players. Um, obviously, you've got Murray, who's, who's not particularly old, but he's had his problem with injuries. But you've also got Serena Williams, who's 38. You've got Roger Federer, who's 38. Even players like Novak Djokovic, he might be younger and he might be able to kind of steal a march from his rivals because of, you know, this... Um, collection of cancellations but he's in the you know the prime of his career and this would have been an excellent opportunity for him to target winning as as many majors in the in the calendar year as possible so yeah it's not just Murray I think it's it's bad for all players and and even though players like Murray and players like Federer and and Williams even though they've got the financial um, strength to kind of ride something like this out and they'll be insulated from a lot of the problems to an extent it's, it's so um, worrying and damaging for, for mid-ranking and lower-ranking players as it is for, you know, footballers who are outside the top divisions or, you know, the golfers who are outside the top 20 or 50. You know, these are people now who are fearing for their, for their livelihoods. And, you know, it's not just players. You've also got, you know, fitness coaches, team members, stringers. All of these people are now worrying about their livelihoods. Um, so, yeah, the problem goes like, Way beyond people like Murray, but I'm sure he'll be um, just as disappointed to miss out on an opportunity to play.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
4: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?
1: As well as being our our resident tennis expert, Luke is also the host of the Independence Football Podcast, so we're going to give a quick plug to that. If you're into football and not already a listener, I encourage you to find it and subscribe. And to give you a taste, uh, here is Chief Football Writer Miguel Delaney from this week's edition talking about his exclusive that the Premier League is playing a World Cup-style finish to the season with some kind of TV mega event and special, special isolated camps in London and the Midlands.
5: Well, it was something that was actually mentioned very early in discussions when they first postponed the league on the 13th of March. And obviously then there was a lot of other issues to, to sort out. So it was packed for a little bit. But in the last week, or really last weekend, because they had more video conferences over Thursday and Friday, it was a, an idea that kept coming back up. Um, especially given, I suppose, I mean, it, a lot of it does sound difficult to work out. But when you consider the amount of logistical challenges to this problem of playing football as soon as possible or, or whenever it may seem to be, to be so, at least, at least it's a plan that tackles some aspects of it uh, or at least offers workable solutions. So, um, so from that sense, they, they, they basically see it as the most viable. Uh, uh, to be fair, I know when people read it now, people basically think that's ridiculous. Um, but what the plan was essentially for it to be June, July, uh, when they hope the curve is flattened and there is actually testing. I think widespread testing is essential to this and the only way it's anyway justifiable.
1: As I mentioned at the moment, football is the big uh, talking point this week. With Spurs getting a lot of heat at the moment for its decision to furlough some of its backroom staff, so basically taking advantage of a government scheme to pay the wages of staff who might otherwise face redundancy. And Newcastle has also furloughed some of its backroom staff inevitably this has been contrasted against the millionaire players who are not taking a pay cut now the wages of premier league players is always a hot topic even at the best of times melissa is it fair that they're getting so much heat at the moment or is this a criticism that should be aimed at the clubs
3: absolutely not i don't think it's fair in any way i think it's quite an easy um, target for politicians and the public to aim at because like you say it's always a hot topic. Uh, I think it's a distraction at the moment. Players obviously cannot be held responsible for the decisions their club make. I can assure you that they wouldn't have even known that staff were to be furloughed. Um, Oftentimes they're so far removed from the decision-making process. Um, And I've spoken to a lot of clubs and a lot of players to see what the mood is. There seems to be a mass willingness to agree wage deferrals um, and cuts, but they've been advised by the PFA not to agree on anything because the PFA want to do their own due diligence. Um, and there needs to be a method where obviously the highest earners are not having to, you know, have the same cut as the lowest earners because there are Affected differently. Not everyone is a Premier League millionaire. You've got a lot of uh, youth players playing in first teams who won't be on anywhere near what you know the captain or the new signing is earning. Uh, So there's all that stuff to be worked out. I think it's quite uh, opportunistic for politicians to sort of just point the finger and deflect everything onto the players. At the moment, Uh, I think you can both find it absolutely ridiculous that Premier League clubs are furloughing staff and turning to the government's uh, retention scheme policy, while also thinking that picking on the players is not the right thing to do in this instance.
1: Do you think that, that Spurs and other big clubs, if they do, it, are justified? I mean, we found out this week that Daniel Levy got a, was it a £3 million bonus. Um, obviously, there's 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 money in the club. Is it is it fair for them to be kind of taking advantage of this scheme in this way? Do you think?
3: No, I don't think so. Premier League clubs still have a lot of uh, revenue that they make, a lot of profits, a lot of money they can fall back on. I think the scheme was intended as a last option for companies that are really struggle, struggling to keep employers on board. And that was a way of, of safeguarding jobs. I don't think Premier League clubs are anywhere close to that point yet of turning to the retention scheme. Um, I think it wasn't any surprise to see Newcastle being first and to see Daniel Levy being the negotiator we all know he is, um, following suit. The fact that the news of Spurs, you know, um, implementing that 20% pay cut and furloughing 550 members of staff on the same day, it was revealed that Daniel Levy's salaries ballooned to £7 million with a £3 million bonus for a stadium that was firstly massively over budget and also massively late. was just honestly staggering. So people are talking about player salaries when you've got all these executives. No one knows how Uh, salaries are calculated even when you look further at the pfa gordon taylor salary know what like where is the inquiry as to how all these executives are earning so much money i think football has so many issues with governance uh social responsibility you know what is their um what is their meaning what are they doing for grassroots football what are they doing lower down the leagues to ensure that, you know, money is going as far as possible. And so for us to all sit there and be pointing at player salaries in this time feels so silly in the greatest scheme of things.
4: David, can I also just quickly say on, um, on Spurs, obviously, you know, Daniel Levy is getting a lot of criticism and rightly so. And it's, <laughs> it wasn't a particularly great time to get a £3 million bonus, but just as bad, if not worse. Spurs are actually owned by a man called Joe Lewis, who is worth £4.3 billion. He's a tax exile who lives in the Bahamas and he's got one of the most extensive private art collections in the world. And he, he, he's escaped a fair bit of criticism. So I feel like when people talk about Levy, his, his name should also be mentioned. And the fact that a, a multi-billionaire who does not pay tax is then relying on public money to pay his lowest paid staff is just disgusting.
1: How does it compare to what um, big clubs in other countries have done? Barcelona, have um, the players there have agreed to a cut. Is that right?
4: Yeah, so, so Barcelona are a really good example. Um, Lionel Messi, best player in the world, one of the best players in history, has been at the forefront of um, this um, drive for Barcelona players to take a pay cut. I think it's about 70% um, to help the club uh, through the pandemic and obviously to help people in connection to the club. Um, the difference in the UK and something that we kind of got stuck into on the um, Indie Football podcast earlier is that the Premier League clubs are essentially waiting to hear what the PFA are going to do. Um, so as, as Melissa pointed out on that podcast, it's not a case of, you know, all Premier League players are kind of evil villains who aren't wanting to take pay cuts. You know, many do great work in the communities. Many have already done individual acts of charity. Um, it's just the case of the, the clubs are waiting to see... Uh, sorry, the players are waiting to see what the um, combined PFA response will be, and then they will take that to the
1: clubs. Sure. And Vish, how does it compare um, with what's happening in some other sports? I know you spoke to uh, Joe Root and Owen Morgan this week about what's happening in cricket. What's what's happening there?
2: Well, cricket's quite an interesting one um, because they're going through a very similar um, issue with uh, players and, and wages and and cuts and all that. Because kind of something emanated this week about the the ECB, the chief executive of the ECB, Tom Harrison, sending a letter to the chief executive of the Professional Cricket Association, which is their player union, about needing to stick together and proposals that will be made by counties at the end of this week about um, pay cuts of about 20% for, for April and May with view to um, further cuts down the line and potentially furloughing as well. Um, and the interesting thing about cricket, and I think it highlights the issue in football quite neatly, is that the your top earner would be, say, your, your person on the highest tier of a central contract. That is, he's contracted to play exclusively for the England team of about six hundred grand a year. And now at the bottom of the end of that, you will have a professional playing for Durham, say, who might only be on 22, twenty two twenty thousand a year. Uh, now, obviously, in football, when you talk about the difference, the disparity in those terms, you've got you're talking about someone who plays in the Champions League, plays in the Premier League, to someone who maybe plays, you know, semi-professional or you know, in, in League Two. Whereas in cricket, Joe Root might end up playing against Joe Root, the England captain, might end up playing against that Durham player on 20k. Mm. So they're all kind of in it together. And as with any union, you're only as strong as you, as your strongest, or I suppose your your highest earners, as it were, your most high-profile earners. And so, while there has been some stick thrown at England players for not maybe um, offering up a pay cut at all right now, it's more because they've had to wait for the wider community, for the wider players' association to come together and formulate a plan because there's no use them coming out and you know, setting the example from the top when there are people who can't, literally can't afford to take um, a 20% pay cut. So I think what the PCA are trying to do at the moment is settle on a situation where maybe the cuts are tiered. So people who can take a a greater cut do so and people who can't necessarily take that big cut are at least offset by those who want a lot of money, you know, suppose forfeiting some of their wage. Um, Cricket, the finances in cricket across the board among the 18 counties varies as well. Um, A team like Surrey and again, a team like Durham are in very different financial situations. Um, We're seeing a lot of non-playing stuff already being furloughed across the country and, a very real prospect of no cricket at all happening this summer, which could be, you know, could be the nail in the coffin for a few institutions and potentially one or two of those counties as well. So, I think at the moment the ECB came out with a, a stimulus package of 61 million, of which 40 million is available right away for those counties for the next two months at least to help them stay afloat with operational costs and things like that. And so far, that money hasn't been borrowed. That's money that exists within the game itself, which is quite an important point to make um, because down the line that could be Completely different. I think we're seeing, especially with uh, sports like cricket, who are so reliant on that broadcast money, that some cricket is better than no cricket, and they put a priority on international cricket um, and uh, the 2020 competition and 100 essentially the stuff that would have been shown on Sky. So they have an obligation to not just fulfill that for broadcast purposes, but also to do so to ensure that money is flowing into the county game because. Yeah, they don't necessarily have the reserves that they did of a few years ago to cope with, I suppose, providing handouts for all the, all the counties and players who are affected by this.
1: Yeah, and I think kind of seeing how that pans out and how that hits those clubs and, and sport across the, across the whole piece is going to be a really important part of what happens with this story over the coming, over the coming months. Um, thanks all uh, three of you, uh, Melissa, Vish and Luke, for joining me today. We'll bring this one to an end here. Thank you for listening. If you're a new listener, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you listen. And also do check out the other episodes already recorded in this series on everything from the economy, to travel, working from home, and even what coronavirus means for dating and relationships. And if you have suggestions for things you'd like us to discuss or uh, do get in touch on email at the podcast at independent.co.uk, or you can use the hashtag in the coronavirus podcast that's indy coronavirus podcast and we'll see that post uh, you can read all about the unfolding stories on our website independent.co.uk and in our downloadable daily edition app and there's also a new email newsletter that you can sign up to if you want the latest news and advice delivered daily thank you again for listening and see you next time